NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Migrants at the border and in abstention at the U.N. What's on the president's plate this Christmas? Also this hour, making the joys of the season fun for everyone, including people very sensitive to all the lights and sounds. And there's a new The Color Purple in theaters tomorrow, a bit sunnier than the book. Yes, we don't have as much uh, trauma involved, but then what do we do with that? Why aren't we addressing it or letting it be a part of the feeling and emotion? It's Christmas Eve, Sunday, December 24th, 2023. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Data from the Committee to Protect Journalists shows more journalists have been killed during Israel's war in Gaza than have ever been killed in a single country over an entire year. NPR's Nina Kravinsky reports from Tel Aviv. According to a CPJ report that came out Thursday, 68 journalists have been killed since October 7th when Israel launched its offensive on Gaza in response to a Hamas attack that killed 1,200 in Israel. NPR producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, spoke to an eyewitness of an airstrike that killed journalist Adel Zaroub. <laughs> Fuad Alada says this journalist who shares the news has become the news himself. How long can we stay like this? CPJ says it's concerned the Israeli military may be targeting journalists, which the military denies. CPJ is still investigating the circumstances of these deaths. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The criminal investigation into the failed law enforcement response to the Robb Elementary School shooting will continue into next year. Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz explains. Uvalde County District Attorney Christina Mitchell had previously said her office would convene a grand jury by the end of the year, but she told the Associated Press that her staff are still examining the police response to the shooting in May of last year that left 19 students and two teachers dead. The investigation could hold answers as to whether lives could have been saved had hundreds of officers acted quicker to confront the gunman. Earlier this month, a Travis County State District judge ordered the release of the Department of Public Safety records related to the shooting. Mitchell said she would appeal because the release of this information to the public would interfere with her criminal investigation. I'm Dan Katz in San Antonio. Well, this is possibly the only time of year that lots of people might be wishing for a snowstorm. The National Weather Service says the central and northern Plains states are expected to get their wish. Here's forecaster William Churchill with the National Weather Service. The heaviest of that snow is now shaping to be um, shaping up to be occurring in like uh, eastern Nebraska, eastern South Dakota. They could get the brunt of it with some very heavy snow potentials there. They could actually see um, over a foot and a lot of that happening on Christmas Day. Denver could get snow too, but meteorologists say there's a warm weather pattern across the central and eastern U.S. and in general most of the country will have milder than usual temperatures. Milder weather in general taking a lot of the chaos out of Christmas season travel, especially compared to last year's holiday meltdown at the airports. The American Automobile Association forecasts 115 million people in the U.S. will travel 50 miles or more away from home between now and New Year's Day. The AAA says that as of Friday, the national average for a price of self-serve regular, 313 a gallon. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston.
Cambridge is getting closer to equipping its officers with body cameras. Cambridge Day reports that the city council approved a report last week on the implications of using the technology. The report says cameras could be deployed early next year, depending on how quickly it can get the cameras and train police officers. Cambridge residents pushed for police body cameras after an officer shot and killed a 20-year-old college student in early January. Today, the Pine Street Inn in Boston is hosting its annual Christmas Eve celebration. For those experiencing homelessness, about a 1,000 guests are expected and will be treated to a choral performance, a visit by Cardinal Sean O'Malley, and a lasagna meal. They'll also receive gifts such as sweatshirts and mittens. The Pine Street Inn's Barbara Trevishan says the shelter has been full every night for weeks and says the volunteer support has been strong this holiday season. If you're in a shelter, that means you've probably lost contact with your family and friends and community. So it can feel it can be very lonely and isolating. And I think the idea that, you know, that people come in and care and engage with the guests um, really means everything. Pine Street's outreach teams will also deliver holiday meals to people on the streets. The family of the late National Grid employee who died in a Waltham crash this month are giving back to their community today. Roderick Quito Jackson's family members are bringing gifts to children staying at the pediatric Somerville inpatient psychiatric facility where Jackson once worked. The Boston Celtics reached something of a milestone in Los Angeles last night. They beat the Clippers 145-108. to On Wednesday, the Celtics beat the Sacramento Kings 144-119. to In those two victories, the Celtics combined for 289 points, their highest point total over a two-game span since November 1966. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, a chance of some showers mainly this afternoon and temperatures reaching the low 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. It's Christmas Eve in Washington, and not a creature is stirring, not even the House. Congress, House and Senate has left for the holidays, but there's still politics in the air. So NPR White House correspondent Asma Hallett joins us now. Good morning, Asma. Good morning. I loved that intro, Aisha. Thank you. Well, you know, we got to have a little Christmas cheer. So um, the the most pressing political story this weekend isn't even here in Washington. It's at the southern border. So let's start with the migrant crisis down there. Mm -hmm. Aisha, and this is a logistical problem as well as a political problem. Um, In recent days, authorities have reported a record number of migrants trying to cross the southern border into the United States, and we're talking about more than 10,000 a day. Uh, So really just seeing stories about this record number, I think, does put the issue, the political issue, front and center. And, And the fundamental divide here in Washington is that the White House and some Democrats want additional resources to deal with the situation at the border. Republicans want to change the rules for who is seeking asylum. 
you know, I would say Republicans and Democrats both agree something needs to be done. The question is whether they can agree on what ought to be done. Um, before leaving town for Christmas, Biden called the president of Mexico, and they specifically discussed efforts to manage migration flows. Uh, president Biden is also sending a delegation to Mexico this coming week to meet with Mexican officials to discuss further actions to address the challenges at the border. So, you know, coming up on Wednesday, we're going to see the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and the White House Homeland Security Advisor all head down to Mexico. I will say, Aisha, immigration has long been a vexing issue in American politics, but there is this urgency to deal with something at the border, both because of the situation, but also because President Biden wants this national security funding bill passed. Uh, and he tied together this issue of the border along with funding for Ukraine and funding for Israel. And so I'm sure we're going to keep an eye on this into the new year. So you mentioned aid to Israel there, and, and the U.S. is a strong supporter of Israel, but there is a lot of pressure on Israel right now to pull back on its attacks in Gaza. What, what about that? I mean, this is an ongoing issue, I would say, globally, also here in Washington, uh, and for President Biden. Um, on Friday, we saw the U.N. Security Council adopt a resolution about humanitarian aid in Gaza, and this is a resolution that the U.S. did not veto. It did abstain. But this came about even after a lot of negotiations. Um, you know, I will say when it comes to issues at the U.N., I think a lot of countries are used to the U.S. being a bit of an outlier in terms of its unwavering support of Israel. But the question is, you know, is that going to continue as the conflict goes on? We're now looking at a situation where more than 20,000 people have been killed in Gaza. The World Food Program program is warning of a famine. And what I will say about President Biden is broadly, he is someone who does not believe necessarily in kind of the public airing of, of diplomacy. He believes in privately having conversations. Uh, this is something that the White House points out that it did in May of 2021, when Israel and Hamas were fighting at a different moment in time, that they were effective, they feel, in doing sort of backdoor, quiet diplomacy. And uh, the question, I guess we're all wondering, Aisha, is will that work this time? Because I do think that this is a full-out war uh, in a different dynamic that we have not seen. And so, you know, the question for President Biden is, this is not really just a foreign policy crisis. It's also become a domestic challenge for him. We're seeing poll after poll show that his own base of Democratic voters are split on this issue. And I imagine that's going to continue to be an issue as we head into an election year. You just mentioned polls. As always, the economy is top of mind for voters. And you were just on a call with some pretty bullish administration officials, right, when it comes to the economy. Yeah, Biden's top economic advisor, Lael Brainard, held a call with a small group of us reporters just ahead of the holidays. And Aisha, what stood out to me is that, you know, if we were having this conversation a year ago, we probably have been talking about how many economists were warning of a potential recession. And now you're hearing the White House sound really confident about a so-called soft landing, which is where you curb inflation without actually having a major economic downturn, without having some sort of massive unemployment. And you know, the economic indicators, the data does show that unemployment has remained below 4% for a record number of continuous months. I think the challenge for this administration is that when you ask folks about the economy, what you hear is that there's this ongoing anxiety because of high costs. And that's specifically around things like health care and housing. 
And so what I heard from Lael Brainard and what you're also hearing from the White House, I think, is a greater acknowledgement about people's pain and frustration around this issue. And she told us that curbing costs will remain the president's top economic priority uh, heading into 2024. And I think it's a real recognition of what is at stake and what's on voters' minds also heading into 2024. And lastly, we said at the top that Congress is out of town for the holiday. What about President Biden? Well, yesterday he left for Camp David and he's planning to stay there through the Christmas holiday. He joins, uh, I think, a long legacy, you could say, of other presidential families who've similarly spent the holidays there at Camp David. It's this uh, wooded retreat in Maryland and, you know, a number of families, I will say, uh, both George Bush's, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon all chose to spend the holidays there as well. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Holland. Asma, thank you so much. My pleasure. And for more on that U.N. resolution, we're joined now by Matt Duss, who has been following the developments. He's vice president at the Center for International Policy. Previously, he advised independent Senator Bernie Sanders on foreign policy. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can you give us a thumbnail of, of what this resolution might accomplish? Well, the resolution hopefully will will lead to the increase in the amount of humanitarian aid getting into Gaza to deal with the the very severe humanitarian crisis um, that's occurring in Gaza right now. It supports the creation of a special coordinator for humanitarian aid into Gaza to increase the amount of aid. It is, according to a lot of critics, including many of the countries who supported the initial draft of the resolution and UN Secretary General Guterres, it's not sufficient for the severity of the crisis. But I do think it, we can say it, it does improve the situation slightly. Can you talk to me about that criticism? And do you feel that it was watered down to get the U.S. on board? And what does that watering down mean for the situation on the ground? Yeah, I mean, it was watered down in a number of ways. First off, because the overwhelming majority of countries in the United Nations support an immediate ceasefire. The U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution to that effect recently. And the initial draft of this resolution created a mechanism by which the UN uh, would be the main inspector of aid going into Gaza, which hopefully would vastly increase the amount of aid that could get in. Um, Israel has insisted on different mechanisms. The United States has continued to support Israel in that. So that is part of why this resolution had to be rewritten to avoid a U.S. veto. Is this a moment that exposes the the strengths and weaknesses of an organization like the UN? I think that's right. Russia, as one of the, the permanent members of the UN Security Council, has a veto over any UN Security Council resolutions and has used that veto or the threat of that veto to frustrate the UN from moving on an issue such as opposition to its invasion of Ukraine to express the will of the, the global community. Russia was exposed and isolated because of that. Now we have a situation in which the international community is overwhelmingly um, opposed to Israel's ongoing assault in Gaza, overwhelmingly supportive of a ceasefire, and the United States is, is the country that is using its veto or the threat of its veto, and now similarly isolated, but it also shows that unfortunately, the UN is incapable in these moments of really exerting its will. Is there any practical way to address this conflict that comes up in these situations that involve very powerful members of the UN? 
No, well, unless and until there is real reform of the UN system, such that it recognizes and, and lifts up the power of the General Assembly and, and you know, removes the veto ability of a few key members, such as the United States, it's hard to see how that changes. And the, the irony here is that the Biden administration and President Biden himself have spoken, I think, quite admirably and, and actually taken steps to try and shore up and, and build up and empower the international system, the UN, other multilateral organizations. They recognize that setting up these organizations and, and supporting them is important for global security and for the United States' own security. But this is an area in which the Biden administration, its own policy is showing the weakness of these organizations. Why was getting the U.S. on board, even if they just abstained, so fraught and so difficult? Well, because the Biden administration is strongly, and I would say pretty pretty unconditionally, uh, supporting Israel's war on Gaza. I mean, let's recognize Israel certainly has the right and responsibility to respond to the, you know, the atrocity on October 7th. But what we are seeing in Gaza is not that. I mean, this is an absolute catastrophe. In terms of what comes after the war between Israel and Hamas, is the UN capable of playing a meaningful role given how tough it was to reach this resolution? Yeah, I think if the United States is is more willing to engage with and support the UN's role, because let's understand the UN sponsors and supports a whole range of humanitarian and educational efforts in the occupied Palestinian territories, and there are multiple past UN resolutions expressing the will of the international community with regard to the creation of a Palestinian state, a two-state solution. And I think if the U.S. is more willing to engage in that to get to the outcome that they have said that they want, there is certainly a role for the U.N. That's Matt Duss. He is vice president of the Center for International Policy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8:18. Coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get the story from Nashville about a new ban on street vendors using snakes. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. It's 38 degrees in Boston. A chance of showers today, mainly this afternoon. Highs in the low 40s. A chance of some showers tonight, tomorrow for Christmas Day. A chance of showers mainly in the morning. Clouds around and highs in the mid 40s. This is WBUR. I'm Louise Chiavoni with these headlines. President Biden this weekend spoke with Israel's prime minister. Biden told reporters the call was private. The White House said the two talked about protecting civilians and securing the release of hostages. The State Department says around 300 U.S. citizens, green card holders, or close family members are trapped in Gaza by the war. Relatives are petitioning Washington to get them out. 
in Bethlehem, ordinarily bustling with visitors celebrating the birth of Jesus. The tone today is somber. In the center of a nativity scene in Manger Square is a baby Jesus wrapped in a white shroud to remember the children killed in the fighting. I'm Louise Chiavoni, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at MadeInCookware.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Along Israel's southern border with Gaza, fruit orchards and cattle farms sit nearly abandoned. There in communities, Hamas militants attacked on October 7th, killing 1,200 people and taking some 240 hostages. Most survivors have not come back. But volunteers have come from Israel and all over the world. NPR's Scott Newman brings us this report, which does start off with some sounds of explosions. Just a few miles from this pastoral dairy farm, Israeli warplanes pound targets in southern Gaza. Thick black smoke rises skyward, a surreal contrast to the hundreds of cows standing idle in their pens waiting for milking time. This is near Oz, a kibbutz, one of the communal farms targeted by Hamas, whose fighters swept across the border 11 weeks ago. One in four residents here were either killed or kidnapped. It's not clear if any of the survivors will ever want to come back. It was very sad, everything here. Aline Stern is a retired nurse from northern Israel who has spent weeks here volunteering on the farm, milking cows and cooking and unexpectedly learning about the implements of modern warfare. Katbam. Uh, was it katbam? A drone. Stern points up as one of Israel's large drones hovers above us. You never get used to it. You never. But she is getting used to the grueling schedule of a dairy farm. There are more than 600 cows here, and they're milked in three different shifts. First one starts at 2 a.m. Nathaniel Willemsey is one of the few volunteers with farming experience. He's only here for a few weeks before heading back to the Netherlands. I'm 21 and uh, just came here to help us a little bit. With a gentle tap to their back legs, Willemsey confidently nudges the cows toward their milking stations. Not all volunteers come with such a skill set. 23-year-old Gabriel Leff is from Cocoa Beach, Florida. He wears farm boots, faded jeans, and a yarmulke. What he lacks in experience, he makes up for in enthusiasm. I'm young, I have the free time, I'm able-bodied, so I've, I felt interested in doing my part. Actually, it's more like a duty. Left sees Israel as a much-needed safe haven for Jews living in a troubled world. Everywhere we seem to call home at some point in time, we've been uprooted from. And uh, when anti-Semitism rises, as it is currently, we always have somewhere to go. For the past 75 years, that's been Israel. As Israeli artillery fires into Gaza, 
volunteers worked down rows of avocado and orange trees, teeming with fruit. Supervisor Paul Flynn, who came to Israel 40 years ago from Ireland, says there aren't enough farmhands for this year's harvest. Most of his Thai laborers went home after the war began. Much will go unpicked. Still, he's grateful for the volunteers, even if many are retirees and not really suited for this work. A lot of them are quite more mature, let's say. So they can't really go climbing ladders and trees. So they're picking just up to their own height. Flynn is focused on his orchards, but I ask him about the intense fighting going on in Gaza's second largest city, Han Yunus. We can see down the road here yeah. you know, smoke coming off of Khan Yunus, so you know that a lot of people probably are being killed there. He quickly reminds me of the deaths on this side of the border. A lot of people are being killed here. Last three weeks of October, first week of November, I think I went to 17 funerals. Israel says about 1,200 were killed in Hamas's attack, and according to Gaza's health ministry, at least 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli airstrikes and ground attacks. Volunteer Ilana Manashi picks avocados, dropping the plump green fruit into buckets, and contemplates both sides of the conflict. All the sides can learn something from this situation, you know. It will take time. We have no other choice, you know. She says Palestinians and Israelis will have to live side to side for many years to come. Scott Newman, NPR News, Niroz, Israel. Christmas time can bring a lot of joy and fun and stimulation. Music, blinking lights, crowds, and smells can all be overwhelming for some people, especially if they're on the autism spectrum. Baltimore's Polar Express train ride has been adapted for neurodivergent young people, and member station WYPR's Scott Massioni is about to take us on a ride. At Baltimore's B&O Railroad Museum during Christmas, there's lots of historic trains you can climb into. Hot chocolates at the ready, there's cookies for munching, and of course, a magical trip to the North Pole on the Polar Express to see Santa. That's a dream come true for many kids, including the eight-year-old I'm riding with today, Henry Lockwood, who sometimes likes to go by Harry. I'm Scott. Are you excited for today? Yes. Good. Our name's Scott. That's Scott. Yeah. Do you want him to call you Henry or Harry? Harry. Harry? Harry? Okay. Hi, how are you? Like many kids, he's experimenting. And he's very excited for the trip as he waits with his dad, Phil Lockwood. Chunka, 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 choo, choo. Can you do that? Let me hear your train. Uh, 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 uh. What kind of train is that? Harry's on the autism spectrum, so sometimes too much stimulation, or too little, can cause him to feel anxious or distressed. Harry's mom, Pam Steiner, says coming to events like this take preparation. I first make sure I'm ready. My hands are free, because he's quick, wearing sneakers generally. But he also, I've got fidgets in here to keep him occupied, things that can distract him. Now, yeah, it's just making sure I've got a toolkit in my purse to try to navigate. People with neurodivergence can often have trouble processing loud noises, lights, and other sensory inputs. There's been a growing movement to make events more sensory friendly by providing accommodations for people with sensitivity. This holiday season, organizations and companies are offering events like sensory-friendly Santas, where Mr. Claus is trained to make the experience more comfortable for neurodivergent people. The Beano Railroad Museum is doing the same. 
Leanne Spear, an educational specialist at the museum, says they alert parents with a sensory map to point out where vents are in the ride. So if there's a sudden change in lighting or a section of the experience is particularly loud, where character interactions will happen, all of that is laid out on that map. For those situations, the museum provides noise-blocking headphones. There's also fidget toys available for people who feel understimulated. And there's a sensory tent once you arrive at the North Pole that's away from loud noises and light. Harry's someone who often needs more stimulation in the form of pressure, chewing, hugs, and lights, which makes the Polar Express an optimal experience for him. Once on the ride, there's plenty to keep him occupied, like dancing train employees and a visit from Santa. Harry's favorite part, though, was the bells that were handed out. By the time the train ride is over, Harry's starting to get a little tired. His mom, Pam, notices that he's getting agitated. I think it's important to always know when enough is enough and to walk away. So we head over to the sensory tent, which is dark and much quieter. Harry plops face down in a beanbag chair. This is like the one we have at home. Big Joe. After some chill time, we head out, but there's still a few things on Harry's mind. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. You've probably heard a new adaptation of The Color Purple hits theaters Christmas Day, a musical starring Fantasia and Taraji P. Henson. The acclaimed Alice Walker novel has lived many lives since it was first published in 1982. There was the 1985 Steven Spielberg film starring Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, and Danny Glover. Then the hit Broadway musical and the revival, and now this new movie adaptation. NPR's Aisha Harris is something of an expert on the color purple. She did a deep dive on the original movie for Pop Culture Happy Hour, which she also hosts. Hey, Aisha, welcome to the program. Um, so it's the return of the Aisha's show. So I'm glad to have you back. Yes. Remind us of the story at the heart of The Color Purple. It obviously keeps inspiring artists to tell it and retell it. The original book and the movie and the shows that have come after it um, are set in the early 1900s and they span many years. And Alice Walker's story tells this narrative of Celie, a teenage girl who suffers a lot of trauma and heartache. She's impregnated by the man she believes to be her father. She's torn apart from her best friend and her sister, Nettie. And she's forced to marry an older man named Mr. who abuses and rapes her. And the book is told in an epistolary form and traces Celie's eventual triumph and healing from her traumas. Um, and, you know, through that, she finds love and friendship with some of the women in her life, including Suge and Sophia. And Steven Spielberg took some heat when the 1985 film came out. Like, what, what happened with that? 
Yeah, there was a lot <laughs> that happened. But one of the biggest things is that, you know, Steven Spielberg is obviously white. He's a white male director who was adapting this black woman's story. Up to that point, he was mo mainly known for making, you know, blockbusters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Um, and so once the movie came out, there were definitely criticisms about how he handled the material, um, especially a character like Harpo, who is the son of Mr. Um, he was seen as being depicted as a very comedic kind of buffoon. Um, and of course, a lot of Black men were very upset about how they were depicted and the fact that all of the Black men in this film are very violent towards the women in their lives. Um, and I think it's really uh, interesting because a lot of Black women at the time and to this day found this to be very true to their own personal experiences. And so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of controversy around that original film. How does this movie try to address some of those concerns and how does it being a musical, like how does that affect the telling of this story? Look, this is a very glossy version in comparison to the 1985 film. And it is presented as a big bursting musical. We have giant ensemble numbers, a lot of really fantastic dancing. Shout out to Fatima Robinson, the legend, the choreographer. There's also the aspect of the, the queer romance between Suge and Seeley. This is very explicit in the book. And in the 1985 version, there was also critiques about the fact that it didn't go far enough. I think that this new version also kind of falls into that same category. This is a movie that is way more interested in happiness, joy, and doesn't want to spend as much time on the more traumatic aspects of the, the, the story. Is there a scene or a character that really speaks to how the new movie handles the material differently? Uh, the scene when Nettie and Celie are separated and forced to be separated by Mr. In original film, it's very, very visceral. Whereas here, it's kind of muted. It goes by much, much quicker. And that's kind of a recurring theme throughout the movie of scenes sort of not getting quite to a point where, yes, we don't have as much uh, trauma involved, but then what do we do with that? Why aren't we addressing it or letting it be a part of the feeling and emotion? Um, let the characters really experience that emotion as opposed to just immediately rushing into the next scene or even rushing into a song before we've fully uh, been immersed in those feelings. Well, bottom line, I'm going to ask you, is this a good movie? And no pressure, like I I'm going to see this yeah. movie, but is this a good movie? <laughs> I think this is a good movie with great performances. You know, if you are someone who really loved this story in whatever iteration it's been in, I think you'll find something to take away from it, even if it's not quite the same as the 1985 movie or the original book. NPR's Aisha Harris hosts Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Should Avery's come into town? You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
Now picture this, you're walking down the bright musical strip that is downtown Nashville. You might see buskers or a bachelorette party bar hopping their way through the night. But then all of a sudden, someone tries to place a very large snake on your shoulders, hoping for a tip. Well, council members Jordan Huffman and Jacob Coopin are saying, nah. No more of that. The Nashville Metropolitan Council recently passed a rule that street vendors can no longer use animals of any kind to solicit payments. We're joined now by Council Member Jordan Huffman. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Aisha. So explain to us, how did this phenomenon of peddling snakes, like how did that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. First off, the bottom corridor of Broadway in downtown Nashville is really a heavy tourist destination. It's become quite the avenue for street vendors as well. Over the last couple of years, we've started to notice that there's been some vendors that will sell a multitude of things, including services to set large snakes on your shoulders for photos. I had a a constituent that was downtown with uh, some family members. So anytime a family member comes in and you live in Nashville, you got to go downtown. That's the thing you got to do, right? And was solicited for the service of uh, setting a very large python uh, on her shoulders. She did not agree and the snake was placed on her shoulders anyway. Um, And she reached out very upset. Um, so I, I reached out to council member Coopin and he said, good news, uh, help is already on the way. I'm drafting some legislation due to some other complaints I have received. And would you like to be a co-sponsor? And this is a really easy way for us to say, Hey, we're taking your feedback and we're not afraid to take action when needed. So how will the new rule be enforced? So the anyone that has a, a street uh, that's a street vendor that has a snake at this point will receive a citation, and uh, um, then that person will uh, be be logged. Uh, so if they are repeat you know offenders, we can address that accordingly. Some locals in Nashville, I guess, have complained over the years that the downtown has become too touristy. Is this part of your effort to make sure that the downtown is comfortable for everyone? It absolutely is, and we are in the midst of a pretty large transition for our downtown corridor. We have a brand new development uh, called the East Bank that's coming in very soon, and this is going to be a really good chance for Nashville to hit a reset on that reputation of just being a tourist destination, and it'll allow us to form a section of downtown, not only for tourists, but, you know, a little bit higher class for uh, the the folks that live here as well. Um, That's the biggest complaint that you get. Okay. Did you ever see some of these street vendors who were um, holding the pythons? Did you ever put a python on your shoulders? Have you done that? (laughs) I have absolutely not. Um, (laughs) I I have seen one coming out from a concert a few months ago. Uh, I stayed uh, as far away as possible. Uh, not very that much of a fan of snakes, okay. personally. <laughs> okay. But, but okay. to each their own. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's Jordan Huffman, who represents District 14 in Nashville. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Aisha. And they won't let you go. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals is moving closer to developing a new class of pain pills. Vertex's non-opioid painkiller is non-addictive and shows promise in helping people recovering from surgery. Vertex's stock jumped 13% earlier this month after the company reported encouraging results from a clinical trial. Early next year, the company plans to report the results of three large late-stage trials of the drug. Relatives mourning the death of a National Grid employee who was killed in a Waltham crash this month are giving back to their community today. Family members of Roderick Quito Jackson are delivering gifts to children staying at Somerville's pediatric inpatient psychiatric facility where Jackson once worked. Tonight, the Patriots face the Broncos in Denver. The Bruins and Celtics are both off today. Yesterday, the Bees lost to the Wild 3-2, and the Celtics beat the Clippers 145-108. to It's 38 degrees in Boston. A chance of some showers today, mainly this afternoon, and highs in the low 40s. A chance of showers tonight. For Christmas Day tomorrow, a chance of showers mainly in the morning. Clouds around Monday's highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Brookline Booksmith and Coolidge Corner, an independent bookstore offering books, gifts, events, and more, just in time for the holidays. More at brooklinebooksmith.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and I hope you rounded up all of Santa's L's for help, because it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, will you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Samantha Robeson of Eugene, Oregon. I said, think of a word that means required. Rearrange the letters to name two school subjects, one of which is often required and one of which often isn't. What are they? Well, the word is obligatory. And you can anagram that to make biology and art. Oh, okay. Well, a lot of people got this. There were nearly 1,200 correct entries. And Jonathan Siegel of Chevy Chase, Maryland, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Jonathan. Thank you, Aisha. And how long have you been playing the puzzle, Jonathan? Oh, at least 20 years. Ever since you started taking answers by email, that's when I started playing. Oh, wow. And I understand that one of your puzzles was actually used for a challenge once? Like, you sent in a puzzle? 
Yes, that was about four years ago. Will used the puzzle I sent in. That was great. And, and now I'm very excited to be part of the puzzle a second time. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. That's awesome. So what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I'm a law professor at uh, George Washington Law School in Washington, D.C., and uh, when I'm not doing that, my hobby is bridge, the card game. Oh, okay. So I feel like, you know, if you've sent in a puzzle, you're good at bridge, and you're good at puzzling over the law, I feel like you're ready to play the puzzle. But I got to ask, are you ready? Yes. (laughs) All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Jonathan and Aisha, I'm going to give you some five-letter words. For each one, change one letter to name part of the human body. For example, if I said herd, H-E-A-R-D, you would say heart, changing the D to a T. Okay. So here's number one, check, C-H-E-C-K. Chest. Nope, that changes two letters. Just change one. That changes two Check. Um... Oh, I I think it's on your face, I think. On my face, the not the chin. Change the second C in check. I'm not doing well here. The the cheek. The cheek. The cheek. Yes, there you yes. go. You're off and running. Okay. Okay. Here's your next one. Angle. A N G L E. Okay, I got this one. Ankle. Is right. Thump. T H U M P. Thumb. Uh huh. Bruin. B R U I N. Bruin. The brain. Yes. The brain. Of course, you're using your brain. Month, M-O-N-T-H. The mouth. Is right. Jelly, J-E-L-L-Y. Belly. Uh Uh-huh. Opine, O-P-I-N-E. The spine. Is right. Tenth, T-E-N-T-H. The tooth. No, no, that would change two letters. But make it plural. Uh, the teeth. The teeth is it. Sings. S i n g s. S i n g s. The sings. Sinks isn't a part of the body. Uh, Change the g. The g. Oh. The oh. the sinus. Yeah. The sinus is it. Lover. L o v e r. Um, liver. Liver is it? Embo. E-M-B-O-W. Elbow. Right. And your last one has two answers. Whist, as in the card game, W-H-I-S-T. Well, it could be the wrist. Yes. Or the, not the whisk, the... Change the second letter again. Oh, okay. Wrist. Um, waste. And your yes. waste. Good job. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so once you got started, you were off to the races, right? Yes. Had a little trouble <laughs> with that first one, but then, then it went better. Yeah, no, no, no. You got the hang of it. So, fantastic job. How do you feel? I feel great. That was lots of fun. Okay. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Jonathan, what member station do you listen to? I'm a member of both WAMU and WETA in Washington, D.C., but I listen to the puzzle on WAMU. 
Okay, well, thank you very much. That's Jonathan Siegel of Chevy Chase, Maryland. Thanks for playing the puzzle. Thanks, both of you, so much. Okay, well, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Neville Fogarty of Newport News, Virginia. Think of an area found in many workplaces in two words. Move the first letter of the first word to the start of the second word. And phonetically, you'll name two items that have a similar use, one of which might be used in the workplace. What place is this? So again, area found in many workplaces, two words. Move the first letter of the first word to the start of the second word. And phonetically, you'll name two items that have a similar use, one of which might be used in the workplace. What place is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, December 28th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, and happy holidays, Will. Merry Christmas, Aisha. For many of us, the festive season means making plans with our loved ones. And that reminded us of our conversation last month with jazz composer Sean Mason, which began with some of his holiday memories. You know, I remember my grandmother dancing in the house all the time. We have a lot of great pictures and VCR videos of of her dancing. He says his grandmother and mother would play Ray Charles and Duke Ellington records during their get-togethers. At the time, Mason was more interested in sports, but that changed with age. At 13, he committed to playing piano. He attended college a few years later at UNC as a music major and later went to Juilliard. His debut album, The Southern Suite, is out now. Sean Mason joins us now from New York. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Aisha. So your album is entirely instrumental, but the music does a lot of talking. Like, what story or stories are being told through this album? Well, first, it's a celebration of life. And and I wanted to wrap the listener as if I'm giving them a hug. The, the album is truly embodying Southern hospitality. Mm. But like anything in the South, it's, 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 it's very layered. You know, it, it, it's also a personal story that, that deals with these kind of two opposing visions or forces, if you will, traditionalism and innovation. When you say that it's a celebration of life, but then you say it's about the, the kind of the conflict between like, you know, that earlier kind of swing, I could see it on like an older TV show, but then this is also a, a modern album. So how do you deal with that juxtaposition? What I mean by celebration of life is one, just at least kind of coming to some kind of agreement of what life is. I mean, every time somebody says that statement, for some reason, the sentiment becomes extremely overly optimistic. And for me, I, I wanted to be a candid celebration of life, which means honoring pleasure and suffering. Disagreements we may have is celebrating different points of view. The, just the differences of musical styles that I grew up listening to, appreciation of our ancestors, but also the narrative forward and pushing the music forward. 
the instruments you use, the, the piano, horns, percussion, they seem to kind of have their own motifs that recur in different songs. Each of the instruments is kind of like a character, like with their own points of view. Yeah, each instrument in, in, in their voice is living because mm -hmm. there's actual human beings playing the instruments. And in most music today, there, there's not human beings playing the instrument. And that's not a judgment, it's just an observation. And with this album, since I had the opportunity to showcase human beings playing instruments, I wanted to make sure that each instrument you can follow throughout the entire album. And each human being, it's, it's like a conversation. And Highlighting the life force behind that instrument was, was something important for me. So there was a lot of polyphony, basically meaning the, the harmony of different voices playing different things together. Polyphony was important in New Orleans music. You hear it on the street for Second Line. And it was originally, it's most known for the clarinet, the trombone, and the trumpet in New Orleans style music where they're all marching, playing marching band music in the streets of New Orleans. But they're all playing different things, but it, 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 it sounds really good together. I mean, you, you listen to the early Louis Armstrong records and you hear that clearly. Okay. And, and so uh, how have the, the, the South and the Black church shaped your sound. I know you grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I, you know, I grew up in Durham. What is the influence of that place in your um, music? Well, the South taught me the importance of the blues. To me, the blues is what makes us human. It's, it's approaching life in, in a very difficult way, but to, to keep my head up in a certain way. There was just so many struggling experiences of, of growing up where I grew up. The early musical experience I had taught me how to keep my head up through these hard times, through the wisdom of my grandmothers, the wisdom of the church mothers, the wisdom of everybody from the South, that things are messed up, but we, we continue to push on. And that blues feeling is what I want to embody in all the music I make, um, to, to have the essence of the blues. so beautiful, um, your song Lullaby. I, this is a song about your grandmother? The, yeah, the, the, the impulse for writing it came from my, my grandmother's passing, but it's a song about life, but that, the impulse for me writing it definitely was, was, was from that, that place that I was in, um, a very nuanced emotion. And you can hear it in the trumpet. I asked him to play with more of a breathier sound throughout the whole course of the song. There's no solos. I wanted to make sure we we maintain uh, an equilibrium and a balance of presence. The whole objective of this song is to be more present in where we are and to breathe. Um, and that's the main themes of this song and, and being able to, to, to deal with that grief in a very healthy way um, and to acknowledge it and, and to move past it and to, and to learn. Mm -hmm. 
Michael, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 25. So you young. I mean, you a baby. Um, so, <laughs> um, I mean, as you've spoken about so so eloquently, you know, jazz has this very rich history, you know, in the U.S., you know, going back to New Orleans in the 19th century. You have this honor and respect and, and a really uh, a focus on the history of this but it seems like that's so different than now where everybody's kind of focused on what's new and what's the latest and and you know that's what everyone's focused on yeah i mean the the disguise of innovation is attractive because you don't really have to study there's nothing to to build upon there's no foundation you can say anything is innovative i, I just grew up in a way that i was i was taught to respect my elders that came before me whether those elders are musical elders who are dead like Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, you, you pick, you know, you name your, your pick. I, I do want to study history. I do want to know what's going on. And, and, and truly, I, I care about the integrity and the, the deepness and the soul of the music itself. I think I'm just grateful for the gift to listen to a song today and somehow connect it to Cab Calloway, for example, what Coleman Hawkins was doing and then what Bach was doing in the 18th century. Somehow I'm able to see these kind of through lines and I wanted to make those through lines evident through my compositions and, and the album itself. One of the last songs on your album is called Closure. Um, tell us about that song, but also what closure have you found? Closure is really just a gospel song. Speaking about Bach again, it's also kind of winking an eye at, at, at Baroque music and, and contrapuntal music. The closure I found is a deeper appreciation of what it means to be human. It, it's just an interesting time wherein it seems like we're going in a way where human life is being devalued and the, the, the human expression is being devalued and the ability for somebody to express themselves uh, is under so much scrutiny right now, especially musically. And, and, and this, this album is just a, me putting my foot down for the fight for humanity, the fight for human expression. jazz composer Sean Mason. We spoke to him last month about his debut album, The Southern Suite. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Merry Christmas to everyone who celebrates. Maisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Union of Concerned Scientists, championing science for a healthy planet and safer, more just world. Learn more at ucsusa.org. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. 
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this Sunday morning. It is 38 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as weekend edition continues. A chance of some showers today, mainly this afternoon. Highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. This Christmas Eve, we take you to Bethlehem for a muted observation of the holiday in a part of the world that's seen some especially dark days. Also, ever wonder where that festive sprig of holly came from? We go to Oregon, a domestic holly hotspot. And a policy success story turns 50 this week. The Endangered Species Act has prevented the extinction of hundreds of imperiled species, as well as promoted the recovery of many others. It's Sunday, December 24th, 2023. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Schiavone. Israel's military has ordered Palestinians to evacuate another swath of territory in the central Gaza Strip. The United Nations says about 61,000 Palestinians have been sheltering in that area. In Israel, where communal farms were hard hit by the brutal October 7th Hamas attack that left 1,200 people dead, volunteers are stepping in to revive what remains. NPR Scott Newman has details. Close to kibbutz near Oz, just a few miles from the scene of heavy fighting in Gaza, about 20 volunteers from around the world are helping with the daily milking of about 600 cows. The farm was abandoned after the Hamas attacks 11 weeks ago. Among those pitching in is 23-year-old Florida resident Gabriel Leff. I'm young, I have the free time, I'm able-bodied, so I, I felt interested in doing my part. Kibbutz near Oz and others like it were devastated in attacks that killed 1,200 people. Israel responded with an air and ground assault on Gaza that has killed more than 20,000 people. Scott Newman, NPR News, Nero's Israel. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump late last night filed a brief in federal appellate court. 
that Trump was acting within his role as president when he pursued claims about allegedly fraud and irregularity in the 2020 election. They further argue, quote, the historic fallout from the case is tremendous. Trump has been indicted four times in both state and federal court. The Supreme Court last week declined to decide whether Trump is immune from prosecution for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results, leaving the case for a lower court to decide. The U.S. Central Command says a Navy destroyer, the USS Lagoon, has shot down four drones in the Red Sea, launched from areas of Yemen controlled by the Iran-backed Houthi rebels. Writing on X, it said that shortly afterwards, a Gabon-owned Indian-flagged crude oil tanker was hit by a drone. The BBC's Anbarasan Etherajan has more details. What's happening in the Red Sea in the past 48 hours has really shaken the commercial shipping operations. Now, the U.S. Central Command has issued the latest update uh, listing out the number of attempts made on tankers and other commercial ships passing through the Red Sea. They say two anti-ship ballistic missiles were fired by the Houthi rebels from Yemen, and they are regarded as the proxies of uh, Iran. None of the ships were damaged, and again, four drones were shot down by a U.S. warship. The BBC's Anbarasan Etherajan reporting. At several sites in Europe, churches and Christmas markets are under increased security amid concerns about potential terrorist activity. In Germany's Cologne Cathedral, sightseeing visits are not permitted, and those attending mass will be screened. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The state is proposing sweeping new regulations to help protect coastal areas vulnerable to flooding and sea level rise. The proposed regulations in Massachusetts will encourage nature-based solutions to flooding, like restoring salt marshes and sand dunes, instead of so-called gray infrastructure, like seawalls. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. The far-reaching regulations would also forbid new construction in certain coastal areas and require that planners use updated rain and sea level rise numbers to reflect the latest science. Climate change is here in Massachusetts, and we are particularly vulnerable to both inland and coastal flooding. Mass DEP Commissioner Bonnie Heupel. Our hope is that these updates will allow homeowners and business owners and communities to plan better and develop smarter and really reduce our overall risk. The proposed regulations are open for public comment until March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. A New England state is set to decide this week whether former President Donald Trump can be on the state's primary ballot. Earlier this month, Maine's Secretary of State heard three complaints challenging Trump's eligibility to appear on the Republican ballot. Two of the arguments followed the same logic as Colorado's Supreme Court, which ruled that Trump cannot hold office because his actions in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol amount to engaging in an insurrection. Anyone still dreaming of a white Christmas in Massachusetts is in for some disappointment. The National Weather Service predicts no chance of snow today or tomorrow. In fact, meteorologist Kevin Kadima says yuletide temperatures are above average. We're expecting, you know, highs like 45 to 50. This time of year, typically normal highs are in the uh, low 40s to near 40 degrees. So probably running about 5 to 7 degrees above normal on Christmas Day. And he says the relatively mild conditions will likely persist the rest of the week. It is 38 degrees in Boston. A chance of some showers today, mainly this afternoon. Highs in the low 40s. 
WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and Merry Christmas. On December 28, 1973, the Endangered Species Act became law. 50 years now of conservation and controversy. We're going to spend the first part of the program this morning marking the law's milestone. And to kick us off, well, close your eyes. Picture that you're standing on a blustery, rocky coastal terrace. Imagine for a second that you're on the Channel Islands, miles off the Southern California coast. The ground is flat but rocky, and you can feel the wind and fog hitting your face. If you look down, you'll see the Santa Cruz Island Dudlia growing between some of those rocks. That's Heather Schneider. She's a rare plant conservation scientist, and she helped save the Santa Cruz Island Dudlia, which was listed as threatened in 1997. The plants are less than six inches tall, and they have chubby, fleshy, sort of club-shaped leaves crawling up the flowering stem. Those leaves are red by the time the plants are starting to bloom. And at the top of the stem, you'll see a bright white star-shaped flower with a highlighter yellow center. So how did this um, plant become endangered? The Channel Islands were subject to almost two centuries of impacts from introduced herbivores. So these were animals like sheep, pigs, and cattle that were brought over by ranchers and other people. In the case of the Dudleya, it was largely pigs that were rooting around, turning up the soil, and upturning plants altogether. Um, and within the last few decades, the owners and managers of the Channel Islands removed most of those non-native animals. And the Santa Cruz Island Dudleya is one that came back quite well and now has become delisted. So did, did people just leave? Or was it a part of an, like, kind of an organized effort to get people to save this plant? It was a big effort, and it included not only removing the animals, but then teams of scientists over decades monitoring these plants, trying to understand how they were recovering and if there was anything else we needed to do to help them. Um, understanding the reproductive biology of the plants. So do they need pollinators to make seeds and are they making seeds successfully? Because we wanna make sure not only that we see a lot of plants in one year, but that we see evidence that these populations are gonna be self-sustaining into the future. Some people listening may think, um, what does it benefit someone who's maybe sitting in Syracuse, New York, or, you know, someplace in Vermont that this plant on the Channel Islands was saved? So in conservation, we talk about ecological networks. And just like all the systems in your body, all the systems in nature are connected. And when you pull out one of those pieces, the network doesn't work as well anymore. And so in the case of rare plants, we often find that they perform unique functions in the ecosystem. They might be a, an important pollinator nectar resource or herbivores use them during a certain time of year when other plants aren't available. So if we lose them, we could be losing something really important and we don't even understand what that impact will be until it's too late to fix it. And now that the species has been delisted, does that mean that the recovery efforts are over and you could just focus on other things now? 
Conservation is a long-term goal. We are never really done, and that's true for plants that are delisted too. Part of the delisting process includes developing what's called a post-delisting monitoring plan for checking up on these plants over usually a decade or more to make sure that once we stop putting so much effort into them, that things don't decline really quickly. Do you find that it's harder to get people to care about endangered plants versus like caring about like the spotted owl or whatever, you know, like, is it harder to get people to care about plants? I think it can be. Um, I think plants are sort of um, the backdrop to our lives that we see them every day. We eat them, we wear them, we use them to build our homes, but we don't necessarily think about them in specific ways. But I think that given the opportunity to get into nature and to learn a little bit more about plants, and I'm talking real small barrier to entry here. I mean, you've got a house plant, you're a vegetarian, so you realize how much plants mean to you. You go for a walk in a park near your house. The more you start paying attention, the more you realize that plants are the foundation of so much of our lives. They're so important and they're incredibly beautiful. I mean, so many traditions are tied to plants, like people have a Christmas tree, that's a plant. Um, and so I think it can be an uphill battle because they're not cute and fuzzy. Um, but if you start to look around, you'll realize you can't live without them. Heather Schneider now has her sights set on getting another rare plant delisted. The Santa Cruz Island Bushmallow, a large shrub with pink cup-shaped flowers. She's optimistic that the Bushmallow is close to recovery and says that the political will, environmental protections, and financial resources afforded by the Endangered Species Act make that possible. Richard Nixon is the president who signed the Endangered Species Act into law. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality, clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. To guarantee that birthright, we must act and act decisively. That's from Nixon's 1972 message to Congress on the environment. He signed the law in his San Clemente home more than 22 months later after taking a commercial flight to California and a public show of energy conservation. I don't know where we'd be without it, quite frankly. Deb Holland is the secretary of the U.S. Department of the Interior. Look at our nation's national bird, the bald eagle, for example, is here today in large numbers because of the Endangered Species Act. Tiny fish, the snail darter, for example, in the South, recovered because of the Endangered Species Act. During Holland's tenure, the Interior Department has expanded conservation actions to include introducing endangered and threatened species to new habitats. Climate change has caused a severe drought in the West, for example. Perhaps under drought conditions, a certain a species needs more space than they historically needed. And so we take all of those things into consideration. A major criticism of the Endangered Species Act has been that it's hard for species to get delisted, meaning that they don't need these protections of their habitat anymore. That has been used to say, well, how successful is it if so many species have to remain listed? What do you say to that? 
Well, I will say, first of all, that the Department of the Interior absolutely follows the law. The Endangered Species Act is an act of Congress, and so we follow it to the letter. The Endangered Species Act has prevented the extinction of hundreds of imperiled species, as well as promoted the recovery of many others. And so we are making sure that these species today that face ongoing threats like habitat loss, threats from the climate crisis, have opportunities to thrive into the future. When it comes down to these debates that will happen, there'll be some big project that's trying to get built, whether it's energy or, you know, uh, apartments or, you know, some type of commercial thing that's being built. A complaint that will come will be like, well, they're trying to block this from being built because of a snail or because of this little fish or because of this little frog. That's going to block all of these jobs and all of this economic development. And isn't that more important than this little snail? What do you say to those arguments that happen so much around the Endangered Species Act? Right. Well, we work really hard to make sure that we take into consideration the voices of the communities. A lot of our conservation projects during the Biden administration uh, have been community-led, tribally-led conservation efforts. Um, there are places to build things. There are places not to build things. And we listen to the science and we listen to the data. So we're very transparent about this work. And, and I feel that if we all work together, we can have economic development. We can also protect species. One of the, the amazing things to, to look back on this law is that such a sweeping and influential law, um, environmental law, was, was signed um, and, and came to be. Do you think that sort of environmental will um, to protect species or protect land, do you think that's still there in Congress today and that something as sweeping as the Endangered Species Act could happen today? Um, you know, I was a member of Congress before I came to this position, and I worked incredibly hard uh, to, in a bipartisan way, to move important issues for Americans forward. And, you know, I, I just, I, I hope that uh, there's enough of folks in those positions uh, to say uh, we need to put the good of our country first. Well, you know, under former President Donald Trump, there was some weakening of protections for endangered and threatened species. And uh, uh, President Biden reversed this. Do you have any concerns um, about the future of the Endangered Species Act and, and, and making sure that it remains intact and survives future administrations? Personally, of course, I believe in the Endangered Species Act, and I'm going to do everything I can uh, to make sure that we are honoring that during this first administration. And so, uh, you know, we have today, we have today uh, to work on this and, and I'm, I'm proud to do that. That was U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland. Earlier, we heard from rare plant conservation scientist Heather Schneider. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the long-awaited follow-up to a key story 
about a special variety of Chex cereal released in South Korea. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. It's 41 degrees in Boston. A chance of some showers mainly this afternoon. Temperatures today in the low 40s. A chance of some showers tonight. And for Christmas Day tomorrow, a chance of showers mainly in the morning. Cloudy skies and highs tomorrow in the mid 40s. Looking ahead to Tuesday, partly sunny. Highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. The American Automobile Association forecasts 115 million people in the U.S. will travel 50 miles or more away from home between now and New Year's Day. AAA says that as of Friday, the national average for a price of self-serve regular gas was 3.13 a gallon. Police in Ocala, Florida, are looking for a gunman that witnesses say was dressed in black as he opened fire at the Paddock Mall. One man was killed, one woman was injured before the shooter fled. An original member of the group founded as the Dixie Chicks has died. Laura Lynch was 65 years old. She was the bassist, and for a brief time, the group's lead singer, she died in a car crash. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Christmas Eve in Bethlehem is quiet this year. No giant tree at the Church of the Nativity. No carols in Manger Square. Churches in the Holy Land officially canceled Christmas celebrations due to the war between Israel and Hamas. Joining us from Bethlehem is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Good morning. Good morning. So no celebrations. What is happening there in Bethlehem today? Well, it's raining today, but when the churches here announced they were canceling Christmas, my first thought was, how do you cancel a religious observance? But it turns out that's not what they're doing at all. They're not having the big party with parades and bands in Manger Square in order to draw the world's attention to the situation of Palestinians, including the 200,000 Palestinian Christians who live in Gaza, in Israel, and here in Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank. So so how are they doing that? Well, the churches here are still holding worship services as usual. The Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem is here in Bethlehem to say Mass tonight at the Church of the Nativity. And here's what I learned about the particular way Palestinian Christians tell the Christmas story. When Jesus was born, also was difficult situation, occupation, occupied Roman occupation. So nowadays we face the same. Isa Thalgia is a parish priest at the Greek Orthodox congregation at Bethlehem's Church of the Nativity. He's standing in Manger Square 
wearing a traditional black cassock. We have to preach about maybe hope, uh, patience, not to be afraid, because when the angels appeared, or the shepherds, they told them to be not scared and afraid, because they was born a prince of peace. Christian leaders in Bethlehem talk this way, reading the Christmas story as their own story. They see it as one of imperial powers and forced migration, despair, and death. Thalgia fears all the current violence will mean fewer and fewer Christians in the Holy Land. We don't want to turn the church into a museum. We need it to keep it alive with the living stones who live in Bethlehem. One of those living stones is Inaz Deeb, who teaches at the city's Dar al-Kalima University. She's been instrumental in arranging for the one Christmas decoration in Manger Square. A huge nativity destroyed, which will resemble the Palestinian family. The Christ will also resemble the Palestinian children in Gaza. The seven-meter-wide nativity is in ruins. Shepherds climb piles of rubble. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph huddle in the midst of destruction. Now, Israel and its supporters, of course, see the Gaza war as something forced on them by the Hamas attack on October 7th that killed over a thousand Israelis. They see Israel itself as a refuge for Jews, cornered by neighbors seeking to eliminate them, formed following the Holocaust. But it does maintain a military occupation in the West Bank, and its fight against Hamas has killed thousands of women and children, according to Gaza officials. And that's what resonates here. Deeb also sees a parallel to Gaza in the biblical story of the slaughter of the holy innocents. The birth of Jesus was also threatened by uh, Herodotus who ordered to kill children. And that's why uh, Christ and his mother and father immigrated to Egypt. So this in a very strong way resembles what's going on now in Gaza. And the Christ himself is a refugee. If you Look for Jesus today. He is in Gaza. Mitri Raheb is a retired Lutheran pastor and prominent theologian who's helped shape this school of thought that reads Christmas as a story about Palestinians. One of his books is even titled Faith in the Face of Empire, The Bible Through Palestinian Eyes. And remember when Jesus said, what you do to one of those little you have done to me? Raheb says the war between Hamas and Israel is destroying the lives of so many innocent Palestinians, both in Gaza and in the West Bank. This Christmas, he prays for peace, but not a vague peace, not a peace that just means the absence of war. Peace means for the Palestinian people to have their liberty, their freedom, the possibility to reach the potential that God had for them to flourish. The answer to that prayer, he says, isn't found by looking up at the sky. It's found on earth when Israelis and Palestinians look into each other's eyes and see not enemies, but rather neighbors. And Raheb says it's found when the nations of the world insist that the shooting and bombing in Gaza and the West Bank stop. Bethlehem gave Jesus to the world. I think it's high time for the world to give peace to Bethlehem. A somber gift hoped for this Christmas. NPR's Jason DeRose is still with us on the line from Bethlehem. Jason, what will be happening there tonight? Well, as has been the case for centuries, there will be midnight mass at the Church of the Nativity, but it's expected to be quiet, less crowded. Very few tourists are here because of the war. 
And Palestinian Christians who might have otherwise come to Bethlehem from all over the West Bank or Galilee to mark the birth of Jesus don't feel safe traveling. That's NPR's Jason DeRose. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. There's been a lot of activity around the landmark Voting Rights Act with the Supreme Court weighing in and several other legal fights being waged in lower courts. What's most at stake is Section 2 of the law, which bans racial discrimination in the elections process. Recently, it's been used to challenge maps of congressional districts drawn up by Republican state legislatures that allegedly dilute the power of Black voters. In some cases, Republicans are adopting novel legal arguments that civil rights groups warn could undermine the power of the law. Joining us to break all of this down is NPR's voting rights correspondent, Hansi Lo Wang. Hi, Hansi. Hi, Aisha. Let's start with the Supreme Court decision in June that struck down a redistricting map created by the Alabama state legislature. A number of legal experts thought this was surprising. Like, why did they think that? Well, because this was coming from a Supreme Court with a conservative majority that for the past decade has been weakening the Voting Rights Act's protections for voters of color. You know, back in 2013, we saw conservative Chief Justice John Roberts write a major decision that got rid of a key part of the Voting Rights Act. But in this Alabama case, Roberts joined conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh and the court's three liberal justices, and they found that Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature approved a map that likely diluted the collective power of black voters in the state. Republican state officials tried to raise an argument that goes against decades of precedent. They argued that race should not be taken into account when voting maps are drawn unless there's evidence of intentional discrimination. But that court majority disagreed and kept in place Section 2 protections in redistricting. So that's at the highest level. But but you've had your eye on the lower court decisions also. So what's been going on there? On voting rights cases in Louisiana and Georgia, lower federal courts have also ruled that maps approved by Republican-controlled legislatures are not in line with Section 2 because they didn't draw enough districts where Black voters have a realistic opportunity to like their preferred candidates. And by the way, because of how racially polarized voting is in these states, those districts are likely to elect Democrats. And what we've seen is Republican officials appealing these rulings, and their most recent strategy is citing this extraordinary voting rights case out of Arkansas. A federal judge, Lee Rudofsky, a Trump appointee, threw out this lawsuit over Arkansas's state legislative map because it was filed by private groups. This judge's ruling said the words of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act say that the head of the Justice Department can bring lawsuits, but the words do not explicitly say that private groups can sue. And why is this question of who can challenge these maps so important? Because the reality is that the majority of lawsuits that are seeking to get Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in force, including that Alabama case that the Supreme Court ruled on, they are brought not by the Justice Department, but by private groups and individuals. You know, very often the Justice Department just does not have the resources or, depending on the presidential administration, may not have the support to sue. Here's Barry Jefferson, the president of the Arkansas State Conference of the NAACP, which is the leading private group that brought this Arkansas lawsuit. This, this issue is so important because for decades, individuals had a right to stand up and say, hey, this is wrong and take it to the court law. And it was stopped because of a judge. 
So how big of a deal is this ruling by the federal judge in Arkansas? Well, the bigger deal is that after civil rights groups appealed the judge's ruling, a panel of judges on the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with the ruling. And now Republican state officials in Louisiana, Georgia and North Dakota have been citing this 8th Circuit panel's ruling to try to keep in place maps that lower courts have found discriminate against voters of color. So this is now the latest front in the fight over this landmark law from the civil rights movement. And I should note, Two of the Supreme Court's conservative justices who voted for keeping Alabama's now struck down map, I'm talking about Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, they have signaled they're open to hearing a case that gets at this issue, whether private groups can sue under Section 2 or if only the head of the Justice Department can. That's NPR's Hansi Lowang. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Deck them halls and do it, says Northwest Holly Growers Association with domestically grown holly. An estimated 95% of the crop is grown in just two states, Oregon and Washington. Here's Dina Pritchup on the holly's success and some concerns. The holly loop trail at Portland's Hoyt Arboretum is certainly looking a lot like Christmas. It's full of all sorts of spiky green leaves and clusters of red berries. So that's Ilex latifolia, and then Ilex glabra, another species there. Martin Nicholson is a botanic specialist and arboretum curator. He points out varieties with white-tipped leaves, some with yellow berries. There's so much variation. These leaves are so cool. Just massive. Nicholson's not the only one enjoying them. The robins are in there at the moment, feeding. They're going to town. They're really happy with this. It's not a real surprise that holly thrives here, particularly English holly, the classic green and red variety that's grown commercially. Ken Bayama is secretary treasurer of the Northwest Holly Growers Association. The climate is, is very similar to places in England where it's a native tree and it was brought by the English and German settlers to the West Coast. That was in the 1800s. Since then, it's taken off and not just as a cash crop. Holly is probably one of the most widely planted ornamentals. I mean, I would probably say more than 50% of the residents in Portland have a holly tree in their yard. But some worry English holly has thrived a little too well. Andrew Gray is a research ecologist with the Forest Service's Pacific Northwest Research Station. Some of the work from our inventory analysis indicates that the cover of holly has doubled in the last 10-year period, both in western Washington and western Oregon. And when English holly plants spread, from runners that sprout from the roots or seeds dropped by birds, they take over, creating a sort of no-grow zone. They can basically turn into dense thickets, shading out, competing against other plants that might be more desirable or might have some natural role in a native forest. Now, to clarify, it's not taking over everywhere in the Pacific Northwest. Gray says although there are about 10,000 acres now dominated by these holly thickets, that's out of about 28 million acres of potential forest land. But whenever there is this sort of exponential growth, it's a concern, especially for a tough plant like holly. I've been engaged in my local parks helping to remove uh, holly. So, so I have firsthand knowledge of how difficult it is to get rid of. So, do we have to cancel our boughs of holly? Well, probably not. Again, it's only the English holly that takes over. That's why the Hoyt Arboretum grows different varieties, or hybrids that can't reproduce. 
Arboretum curator Martin Nicholson says when English holly does crop up along the trails and forests, like it does everywhere in the region, they root it out, sometimes with local volunteers. Luckily, it doesn't grow too fast. When the plants are little and you see one, that's the time to pull it out and get rid of it because that's a, you know, a five-minute job versus something that you might spend several hours on having to chainsaw. Nicholson says he's not coming for anybody's wreath. But if you do have a big English holly tree, he says consider digging it up and planting something else, maybe an American holly or Oregon grape. There's some really good alternatives out there. I think the more people who take them out and the less fruit there is available for the birds to feed on, then the less work we have to do in our natural areas to control it. And he points out those other plants can also make a nice Christmas wreath. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett in Portland, Oregon. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Okay, one of our favorite things from 2023. It was a bit of a follow-up three years in the making. Some of you might recall the story we featured on Weekend Edition back when Scott Detrow was filling in as guest host. In South Korea, there's a new Chex flavor in the breakfast aisle. Green Onion. Kellogg's has rolled out this new variety of checks with a commercial featuring Tae Ah, a popular Korean singer rocking a green suit and hat combination that can only be described as scallion-rific. Now, why the big deal about Green Onion checks? And why was the singer singing I'm Sorry over and over in Korean? The backstory. In 2004, Kellogg's Korea asked folks to vote for a new flavor of checks, chocolate or green onion. And Green Onion won overwhelmingly. But Associated Press reporter Juwan Park told us that Kellogg's Korea was not happy about that outcome. Kellogg's Korea deleted votes, or what they call a duplicate votes, and then they held additional votings. So, I mean, at the end, the chocolate-flavored cereal won. Green Onion fans were very disappointed. It took until 2020 for Kellogg's Korea to finally make that rigged election right and put Green Onion checks into production. And that was the end of our story until a couple of months ago, when a box showed up on the desk of Scott Detrow postmarked July 2020. Yes, it sat in NPR's mailroom for three years because of the pandemic. Scott knew he had to open it. The only things I can read are Kellogg's and limited edition, and then there's Korean lettering, and there is what appears to be an angry Hulk-colored Chex cereal with bad breath. It's got, like, green squiggly breath. We need a taste test. Do it, Scott. Do it. So I'm going to try it plain first. Mmm. There. Oh, there's the onion. The onion... (laughs) The onion was, it started out a little sweet, and then just a rush of onion comes in, which is like really not, not a good combination. So I guess try it with milk. All right. Dubious. (laughs) That truly tastes terrible. That tastes terrible. Yeah, you've got sweet, you've got onion, and you've got milk all kind of mixed together. Would not recommend. He's not a fan of the green onion checks with milk, but... Okay, so 
I went back and listened to the original story, and the reporter we talked to did suggest that based on the flavor profile, maybe it's more of like a bar snack type cereal that you have with a beer. We went ahead and got that ready just in case. So we're just going to eat it out of the box with some beer and see if this makes it any better. Okay, this makes the most sense so far. Um, yeah, so do not do not eat this with milk like normal cereal. Just put it in a bowl, have it with some beer if you want. But like, I think really, I think really you're fine not having it. That's my takeaway. NPR's Scott Detrow, now a host of All Things Considered, finally getting his taste of green onion check cereal three years after he first told us all about it on this program. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Cambridge is getting closer to equipping police officers with body cameras. Cambridge Day reports that last week the city council approved a report on the implications of using the technology. Cameras could be deployed early next year depending on the timing of acquiring the equipment and training the officers. Cambridge residents pushed for police body cameras after an officer shot and killed a 20-year-old college student in early January. Today, the Pine Street Inn in Boston is hosting its annual Christmas Eve celebration for people experiencing homelessness. About 1,000 guests are expected. The event includes a choral performance, a lasagna meal, and gifts. Pine Street's outreach teams also will deliver holiday meals to people on the streets. Pine Street Inn leaders say the shelter has been full every night for weeks. They also say the volunteer support has been strong this holiday season. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. And the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. For many people around the world, Christmas Eve is one of the most sacred nights of the year, joyous and somber, when the faithful attend church services and families gather to celebrate. We'll take you to two places where the night is falling amid uncertainty, fear, and war, Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank, as well as Kiev, where Ukraine is celebrating its first Christmas on the Western calendar. I'm Scott Detrow. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Like to look at a story as well as read one? This year saw a number of excellent graphic novels and memoirs, and NPR's Books We Love has plenty of ideas for your next story. Today, here are suggestions from a few of our colleagues. 
My name's Chloe Veltman. I'm a correspondent on NPR's Culture Desk. My book is Artificial, A Love Story. It's a graphic memoir by New Yorker cartoonist Amy Kurzweil. In the book, Amy describes how she and her father, famed futurist, technologist and inventor Ray Kurzweil, harnessed the power of artificial intelligence to connect with the grandfather Amy never knew. Fred Kurzweil, the grandfather, died in 1970. He was this talented conductor and pianist from Vienna, Austria. He fled the Nazis just before Kristallnacht in 1938 to begin a new life in the United States. Through words and meticulously detailed pen and ink drawings, this smart and spiritual graphic memoir not only chronicles the process Amy and her father Ray go through to create a chatbot version of their forebear, but it also asks these really big questions about how we memorialize the people we love and the relationship between technology and humanity. I'm Nicolette Kahn, and I work with NPR's research, archives, and data strategy team. I read quite a few graphic novels this year, and Mimosa by Archie Bongiovanni was one of my favorites. The book explores the lives and friendships of four 30-something queer people in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Chris, Joe, Elise, and Alex are navigating work, sex, relationships, and parenting, all while trying to find joy and community through organizing a queer dance night for people over 30. I love this book because it explores how messy and complicated friendships can be, especially as people age and change and try to meet the expectations they've set for themselves and each other. It's a smart, cool, raw, and funny slice of queer millennial life. My name is Beth Novi, and I'm a producer on Books We Love. And this year I wrote about I Must Be Dreaming by Roz Chast. Roz Chast is a cartoonist for The New Yorker, and in this book, she catalogs and illustrates her own dreams, which, as it turns out, are totally bizarre. She has a dream where she runs into Henry Kissinger at the dentist. She dreams that there's a new holiday where children run through the streets clutching armloads of forks and spoons. Other people's dreams are notoriously uninteresting, but Chast is so funny and her dreams are so weird that she really makes it work. I thoroughly enjoyed my romp through her subconscious and I'd recommend this book for anyone who loves her humor or who is interested in what your brain is doing after you fall asleep. That was Beth Novi who suggests I Must Be Dreaming, Nicolette Kahn with Mimosa, and Chloe Veltman with Artificial, A Love Story. For more ideas, you can find the full list of books we love at npr.org slash bestbooks. You know those songs that you just kind of know? You sing along without even thinking about the lyrics? We're going to explore the history of one of those songs this morning. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. The song was first performed on New Year's Day, 1773, over 250 years ago. NPR's Samantha Balaban is our guide through its extraordinary history. This history begins with an unlikely author. John Newton was a strange mix of uh, a person. James Walvin is a historian and the author of the new book, Amazing Grace, a cultural history of a beloved hymn. His favorite version is the one you're hearing now. It's hard not to listen to Paul Robeson singing Amazing Grace and not feel the back of the, the neck tingle. I see 
But he digresses. Back to John Newton. Here is a man of God who writes a very godly hymn, but who actually was engaged in the most barbaric of personal behavior. John Newton was a slave trader. He trafficked enslaved Africans to the Americas. We know that he tortured slaves, tortured Africans on, on board the slave ships. On one voyage, Newton's ship was caught in a storm. He made it home, but barely. The Lord had saved him by his grace. And that's the origins, really, of his ideas that went into amazing grace. Newton gave up slave trading. He became a parish rector and started writing hymns. In December 1772, he wrote Hymn 41. He wrote the words. The music comes later. There's no way of knowing what that first New Year's Day performance of Newton's hymn would have sounded like. But maybe something like... This is the English Chamber Choir performing Amazing Grace to Tune 14, a tune attached to Newton's words in an early hymn book. James Walvin says Amazing Grace never really gained a foothold in Newton's England. But then it was published in America, where Christianity was booming. In the United States, you had this kind of proliferation of nonconformist groups, of Methodists, of Baptists, and, and sects that spin out from those. And all of them, all of them sing. Was grace that taught my heart to but still, no one could agree on a tune. Enter William Walker, otherwise known as Singing Billy. A singing master, one of many who wandered around the early United States teaching people to sing, individually and collectively. Walker took Newton's hymn and paired it with a tune called New Britain. At this point, Amazing Grace starts to sound familiar. This is the first recording of Amazing Grace to the tune of New Britain, performed in 1922 by the original Sacred Harp Choir. Newton died long before he would have been able to hear this version of his hymn, but he probably still would have recognized it. What Newton wrote in the 1770s is still what we sing today. It gives you some indication of how how popular it was. In the 1930s, the Library of Congress commissioned John Lomax, his wife Ruby, and his son Alan to travel around the American South, making recordings for the Archive of American Folk Song. They found people singing Amazing Grace in Texas and in Alabama. They found that people sang Amazing Grace scattered across the United States in the most extraordinarily remote places, uh, black and white, rich and poor, individual, old people in their homes, these crackly old American voices of all kinds of regional accents, all singing Amazing Grace. I don't know that we know exactly when it was first sung in a black church, but we know that hymns have been a major aspect of religious worship for African-Americans. Melvin Butler is an associate professor of musicology at the University of Miami. People often 
kind of make a big deal out of the fact that the composer of the hymn was a former slave trader. But for African-Americans, it's a pro-underdog song. You know, those who have been downtrodden and oppressed, you find salvation in this idea that no matter what you're going through, no matter who calls you a wretch, you have this amazing grace to rely on. Reginald Golding, the music director of the Howard Gospel Choir at Howard University, says it's not surprising then that Amazing Grace would become a staple of the civil rights movement. When you study and look at the music of the civil rights movement, they were minded to sing songs that people would have difficulty arguing with from a lyrical standpoint. Who could argue, for example, with the great gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson? Jackson met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1956. She sang in Selma and at the March on Washington. And she even sang Amazing Grace to King over the phone at night to calm him down at the end of a long day. The song was becoming known as a balm for troubled times. And that was never more apparent than during the Vietnam War era. I'm Judy Collins, and I am a singer, songwriter, poet. Back in 1969, Collins was part of a group of people discussing the war in New York City. Her producer, Mark Abramson, made a suggestion. He said, you know, I think you should sing something because everybody's sort of frothing at the mouth here and something could break out that's physical. So I sang Amazing Grace because I knew that everybody would know a little bit of the song and it calmed everybody down. And the next morning, Mark called me and said, you know, we've got to record this. Amazing Grace. Judy Collins recorded this version of Amazing Grace at St. Paul's Cathedral at Columbia University for her 1970 album, Wales and Nightingales. It's an incantation. And at least in those moments when we're singing together, we're really together. We have no argument. We have no dissent. And that's the strength of it. And that's why I think when my version of it came out, and it was a, an a cappella choir singing together, it really rang a bell with people all over the world. When we It was also a huge commercial success, and it would quickly be followed by another. The next song needs no introduction. In 1972, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, recorded her version at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. It's the same song, but transformed in the African-American tradition, says Melvin Butler. Even the first syllable is almost a full 10 seconds long. And then it's like almost a whole minute before she gets through the phrase, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Because she's interjecting moans and she's using what we call melisma, you know, multiple pitches on a single syllable. It's one of the through lines between the blues and gospel music, right? This idea of 
you know, telling a story but moaning. You know, you're expressing heartache on some level, but you're capturing something that the words can't express. A lot of times in black churches, you'll hear people even interject or shout out, take your time. You know, they're encouraging this kind of individuality in performance. And it's become one of the hallmarks of this song in particular, whether it's Diana Ross or Jennifer Hudson, and certainly Aretha Franklin. And even Barack Obama's <laughs> performance demonstrates some of this. That's what I felt this week, an open heart. In 2015, black worshipers were targeted because of their race. Nine people were murdered during Bible study at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. President Barack Obama flew to South Carolina to deliver the eulogy for Pastor Clemente Pinckney. If we can tap that grace, everything can change. Author James Walden says it was this moment that made him want to write a book about the song. Amazing grace. As he spoke, he stopped. Amazing grace. Waited a second and then began to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing grace. Musicologist Melvin Butler. Obama's not, I don't think he would say he's a, a virtuosic vocalist, but if you listen to those first few phrases, he does sort of inject a bit of blues sensibility into that song. There's a little bit of a moan, and it's like, this is, this is Obama saying, I'm one of you. For me, personally, it was a beautiful moment, and I think it'll go down in history. The history of Amazing Grace is already full of remarkable moments, but here's just one more. In 1971, inspired by the commercial success of Judy Collins' single, the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards recorded a bagpipe version. Amazing Grace had never really been recorded this way, without lyrics, says James Walden, author of Amazing Grace, A Cultural History of a Beloved Hymn. And thereafter, the kind of haunting refrain of pipers playing Amazing Grace becomes a theme that people want to use at funerals. It's since played at events marking September 11th, after the Oklahoma City bombing, at presidential funerals, regular funerals, and to honor the memory of firefighters at the Firemen's Memorial in New York City, located right down the street from where Judy Collins lives. And every year, thousands of firefighters come to the Upper West Side and they circle that monument and they sing Amazing Grace. And I can hear it in my home. And I go out on the street and I go down to join their crowd and listen to them sing Amazing Grace. That's what moves me the most. For a song with a 250-year history, the beauty of Amazing Grace is its ability to shapeshift. It's a religious text, or not. It's a hymn, or a gospel song, or a folk song. It spurs protesters to march forward, or calms an angry crowd. It's a song of hope, or mourning, or celebration. It's a song you can sing with others, or listen to in the quiet of your own home. Samantha Balaban, NPR News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe.
Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Union of Concerned Scientists, championing science for a healthy planet and safer, more just world. Learn more at ucsusa.org. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. Join us next month at City Space for a conversation with chef and stay-at-home dad, Jack Zhang. His viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a cookbook. That's Monday, January 8th. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. As you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.